You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great Will Hines, joining us all the way from Los Angeles, California. Will, thanks for being here. Hi, Louis. My pleasure. Hello, um, hello listeners. Uh, uh, among a very, very lengthy resume of accomplishments, two things that uh, uh, you should know about Will listening to this, uh, Will currently plays at the UCB Theater in L.A. with the Smokes. That's right. Yeah, um, you're doing a 10 year anniversary show for the Stepfathers. Is that correct? Yeah, tonight. Awesome. The day we're recording this, yeah, tonight at 9:30. Rock and roll. I'm and excited. Uh, uh, Will, you are also the former head of the UCB Training Center from 2009 to 2013. Oh, yeah, it's so nice you know all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, uh, so I want to just dive right in. You're in town teaching workshops as well as performing at the Del Close Marathon. Yeah. You and I just before the podcast was starting, we're having a really interesting conversation about fighting and scenes. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'd like to get back into that because I, I. Do you want me to summarize what I just said? So yeah. Then? Yeah. And uh, you want to jump back in? Yeah. Do you totally. want? Yeah. So it, what we were talking be funny about if was we about it. We could it'd be for funny if we did. Yeah. Illustrative purposes. <laughs> I think uh, I think that you and I have have similar points of view on fighting and scenes. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, where's your head at these days when you're teaching people how to effectively fight in scenes? Well, I think, yeah, every, everybody I think comes down. Everybody agrees. All improv teachers, I think, pretty much agree on improv fighting. But I still, I've never yet found the silver bullet advice that really captures it all. So I'm th- I think about it a lot. So yeah, right now my favorite mantra in regards to fighting uh, is uh, that philosophical debates are good, but wizard battles are bad. So philosophical debates are if two characters are having a point of view discussion, right? And like I was in the example I was saying to you just before is like if a character says they don't like Facebook, right? It's coming from a truthful place. The actor maybe doesn't like Facebook. It might be helpful for the other character to just automatically take the other side be like "Ah, i like facebook not to win the fight not to defeat the person but just to explore a point of view that's like a pretty good thing to be able to do in an improv scene not as a not as a hard rule but that's just a a very common play you got to run where we will explore opposite sides of a point of view um and you might be taking the side that's not yours so you got to have empathy enough to argue the side that isn't yours that's, I think that's often very helpful. Philosophical debates can lead to a point of view, or that can maybe lead to a game or something, some kind of pattern. But then what's bad is wizard battles. Wizard battles is a term that this teacher in L.A. named Alex Berg uses, and I've stolen from him, uh, which is like when a, you know, a player is using their powers of reality to win the fight. So if we're talking about Facebook and, I, and you your character doesn't like it. And mm-hmm. I say, I do like it. And then I say, oh, but you won the lottery on Facebook. That's like, that's bullshit. Like I'm just making up something to make you look wrong mm-hmm. and it's not helping the scene. And it it's, closes a door on you. Yeah, it's pointless. Yeah. It's just winning and it doesn't explore anything or reveal anything new. But it, but it would maybe be helpful for me to say, oh, but don't you connect with your parents more? And isn't it kind of nice to be in touch with some people from high school? And you can unfollow people and control it, and it's the new you know, world or whatever like that. Uh, and I think that too often the advice on fighting is uh, it's, uh, it's too draconian. or like People will just tell you sometimes, don't fight. Mm-hmm. But that leads to no realistic discussions. Mm-hmm. 
And I've also gone too much the other way. I'm like, fight like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and then like it opens up defensive moves. And I'm really looking for that. Yeah. I, so I think about that a lot. Yeah. I, it, uh, the, the idea of a philosophical fight versus a wizard fight. I, I'm trying to think of a movie that comes to mind. I guess the first thing that I think of is uh, Mean Streets. Have you seen Mean Streets? Uh-huh. Um, so the way that you're in Harvey Keitel's head for that whole movie and, and you're kind of seeing things right. through his Early eyes. 70s Martin Scorsese, Street Toughs. Yes, kind of a precursor to... driver Yeah, and, 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 and like bits and pieces of Goodfellas kind of, uh, yeah. you see where it came Gang, from. Lower East Side Gangs. Lower East Side Gangs. Scorsese's kind of childhood haunts. Yeah. I think it's one of yeah, his best cool movie. movies. Yeah. I, I like how rough it is around the edges. There's something yeah, very kind of pure about super it. super groovy, man. Yeah. <laughs> At the end, you hear kind of De Niro's side and you hear kind of De Niro... Uh, uh, make his point about himself and, and kind of knock down Harvey Keitel's point of view throughout right, the Right, which we've been on that side the whole time. Yeah. Keitel's like the sweetheart, right? He's like the more sympathetic guy. He's the more sympathetic guy. guy, and he's the, the guy who's kind of meaner. And, and a lunatic. He's kind of uh, out for himself and <laughs> yeah. just like, he's just a crazy guy. He's the wild guy in the bunch. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the movie, you kind of get De Niro's point of view that, that Keitel is really looking out for himself, that, you know, it's really... Oh yeah. You you have this you you got to be you got to be Santa Claus. You got to be the guy yeah. that everybody and it your perception of Harvey Keitel in that movie kind of takes a little blow. And there's a moment where they actually get into a fist fight and at the end oh, of the yeah. fist fight there's kind of a different level of understanding between the two of them. Yeah. You know, like you cut through some of what you didn't even realize was Harvey Keitel's bullshit. Yeah. It's a super interesting fight and a super interesting turning point in that movie. Yeah, it's a good that's a good uh, they're basically having a philosophical discussion even though they do Fist fight. Yeah, it, but it's true, and, and it, it's about the nature of this character and the nature of the way that this guy sees himself that erupts into an actual fist fight. But you know what? When the fist fight's over, we're at a new point. The scenes move forward pretty yeah. dramatically. You know, there's a really interesting change that's taken place. Yeah, Kaitel's a little humbled. Yeah, versus um, any of the Star Wars prequels, which are the perfect literal example of wizard fights where it's yeah. superpower being shot at somebody yeah. and then they shoot a superpower back and, and you kind of zone out for the 12 minutes that the fight is going on. It yeah, feels like nothing's happening. There, yeah, nothing is happening. Yeah. There's no internal continuity. Those yeah. movies are hilariously bad. They are, yeah. They're, they're funnily bad. Yeah. I saw uh, Phantom Menace with a, my childhood friend because we had seen like the Star Wars movies together and stuff yeah. like that. So we're like, oh, we're going to see Phantom Menace and... I don't know if I think a lot of people had this reaction when it was first over. We were in denial that it was a bad movie because we had been so excited for it to come out. Mm-hmm. It took like two weeks for us to be like, I think that movie might have been bad. Mm-hmm. And then everyone would kind of like woke up and was like, oh, yeah, it's a bad movie. Yeah. But my friend never admitted it. He was like, no, The Phantom Menace is great. Never back down. And then when The Attack of the Clones came out, he insisted on go seeing it. And the whole movie, which is also a terrible movie, yeah. it's like marginally better, but it's still a total piece of shit. Yeah. And at the end of it, this is maybe one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my whole life. At the end of Attack of the Clones, I turned to him and said, so what do you think? He goes, I think that's one of the top two movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and I was like, two? Shouldn't, I mean, is Star Wars the other, shouldn't the other Star Wars movies be better than this? But I was like, what is the other movie? He's like, The Godfather. Wow. <laughs> I was like, you're not making any sense. Wow. You've lost your mind. There is. That's a crazy position to take, and and then at a certain point, there's something kind of admirable about sticking to it. Yeah, I guess he's loyal to it. I yeah, don't know. I don't know, man. Holy shit! I think you got to not be too attached to that. Yeah, you got to be willing to just say like I was under a spell. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, fighting is tricky. I think because uh, going back to that, it's like uh, 
good fighting and bad fighting feels very similar, I think. Mm-hmm. And bad fighting feels like a, a lot of good stuff in improv. Like bad fighting feels passionate and true yeah. and honest and specific. All that stuff's great. Like that stuff's all what you're trying to get to, right? So it's really tough for younger improvisers. You want them to be like passionate and committed and honest and personal, but then they'll only do it to like defend themselves. Yeah. I mean, I've done it. I don't mean to, but that's the trick is like getting them to separate their ego out. You know what the, re- the real mathematical, or the re- I don't know how to put this, the guaranteed way to know if a fight is good or bad, it, and it, this is not helpful when you're doing improv, mm. is like if you feel like defensive anger while you're doing it, it's wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if you're just doing it to protect yourself, right. like that's wrong. Yeah. Even though that does happen in real life, but you can't pursue that feeling. But that's not necessarily helpful. Like, if you make fun of me on stage and I zing you back, that's probably not helpful, even if it makes the audience laugh. Yeah. Uh, but if you say something about yourself and I zing you just to, like, make your thing more true or create more evidence to back up what you said about yourself, that is good. Mm-hmm. And the audience might laugh. Those things feel very similar, but the former one is, like, a protective move. Yeah. It doesn't work. There, well, I kind of experience that when I get really passionate in a scene is not so much protecting my point of view as I really want my partner to understand. I want my partner to, to, to get where I'm coming from. I don't think that's bad. Yeah. I, I, well, because it, it also, it's not just winning the fight. There's also a very specific, you have a purpose in that scene. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get inside somebody else's mind and get them to see things the way that I see things. It gives you a, a it usually leads to really active feeling scenes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that sounds, that's a coming from the right place. You're not coming to protect yourself. Yeah. You're just coming from being understood, which is good. Communication is yeah. good. Here's a particularly nerdy specific thing that I'll pay disproportionate attention to. A particular kind of fight that is really annoying is when uh, people misunderstand something in the initiation like the response just clearly missed something mm-hmm. or is ignoring it or is rushing past it because of nervousness mm-hmm. or they have an idea from the opening already or just because it happens. Mm-hmm. And then the initiator is like on some level annoyed mm-hmm. and starts a, the character starts a fight. Like, And I'll tell you the most common version of this I see is initiate. This is so specific. I think it's true. I'm going to say it. The initiator comes way downstage like towards the audience mm-hmm. and starts getting immersed in object work, mm-hmm. like chopping some food or whatever, or looking at a microscope. It's a real common move, downstage right, object work. So that means they're, the other person's behind them. Mm-hmm. And then the person behind them feels like left out, can't tell what the object work is, and just makes a big choice out of kind of like a mild panic. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's an accusation or just something from fear or just whatever an arbitrary thing hey we gotta clean up or stop cleaning the thing we gotta do it whatever and the initiator feels like violated mm-hmm. like no that's not what I was doing you didn't give me a second you didn't wait and and turns around and just fights with the person Yeah, but you didn't do this Yeah, I see it like a lot uh, and it's you know the answer is uh, I've come to, I've come to uh, talk about the very first connective moment in the scene is the handshake like you got to shake hands before you can start the scene mm-hmm. eye contact 
or just like acknowledging something. Usually it's like super casual and like not a big deal. But in certain cases like this where the people aren't facing each other because of stage picture or maybe there's a big complicated opening so they're in their heads, they forget to like do it, a false fight will emerge almost immediately. Yeah. It especially happened if somebody with the object work, this is when it's really noticeable. Person comes downstage, starts doing object work, and says something pleasant. Like, oh, sandwich is almost ready. But the person is still confused and has already made some choice and feels like the audience saw them and has to stay with it and ignores that mm-hmm. and then says, like, what about my shoes? Right. <laughs> and then the person is mad and they drop their pleasant tone and just fight. Yeah. And it's like a false fight. Yeah. You're just, you didn't shake hands. You, you, the person tried to shake hands with you by talking about a sandwich and you rejected the handshake. Yeah. So they're as miffed as if they'd put out their hand and you ignored it. That reminds me, Anthony Tamanik teaches a whole class that's about diagnosing uh, the actual interpersonal subtext of the actors on stage. And not just the <laughs> same, you know? He's big on mindfulness right now. Did you know that? Uh, I haven't spoken to him for a while, but that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, but that's true. You, you see that kind of shit all the time where people are bursting into a fight. And, yeah, and I mean, I do it. nothing to do with these characters. I do too. I should act like I'm above Of it. course, yeah. Just I, from watching classes, I became... You know, you you see the patterns much more. It's easy to see it when you're not doing it. Yeah, yeah, you see it all the time. Yeah, my brother and I do a two prop show. We perform together a lot. My mm-hmm. brother Kevin Hines, and after a handful of shows, we made a rule for ourselves: no fighting in the first line. Yeah, <laughs> it's our only restriction. We can fight in the second line. Yeah, like once I've heard the initiation, if I want to fight, that's okay. But you're not allowed to start in a fight. Because we were doing it all the time. Yeah. And it was just our fear, I think. It was just because we didn't feel like we were funny enough. You know, we just were swinging hard yeah. because we just felt like we didn't have enough charisma to carry a show. That's a really interesting point. That the Charisma is, is the word I find really interesting because I experience that all the time, too. This like momentary panic that I'm not charismatic enough for people to give a shit about. And then yeah. I overcompensate by putting my foot on the gas. Oh, yeah. You know, and then before you know it, uh, you're on this you're on this road to nowhere. Yeah. What's your version? Cause you seem like a pretty, you're like a soft spoken, pretty mild mannered dude, right? Yeah. Isn't that your general temperament? I'm pretty patient as an improviser. I, I take my time. So what's your panic mode? Um, uh, I, there's a fake voice that comes out of me sometimes. Ooh. I think I become a smarty pants. I think I become, oh, yeah. I definitely do that one. Yeah. That's a bad one. That's I'll go to Wikipedia references. I'll do that too. And oftentimes I'll realize that... It's like an Asperger's yes. defense. Like, yeah. I'll just list Best Picture winners. Well, if I'm not charismatic, I can at least impress you with how fucking knowledgeable I am. Yeah, I'll do that. And then it lacks any sense of connectedness. Now, that's the thing with a move like... A pleasant move of, like, the sandwich is almost ready. Sometimes I see people panic with that move and and the second line is going into a fight. And... I can't help but wonder if maybe, especially if the person initiating has their back to their partner and is all the way downstage. Yeah, which happens a lot. Happens a lot. Um, It probably happens partly from a note of place your object work downstage, take a powerful spot so that you're right in front of the audience. Probably. I think it's something even more primal. Yeah. Because it happens so, because there's so many notes that are given that just get ignored. Yeah. That one gets heard and people do it all the time. There's something that feels safe about it. What do you think that is? I don't know. It's some kind of, I mean, I think it's like, I'm talking pre-dinosaur, mammal, burrowing territory, taking a corner of the stage that is just yours and nobody can get to it. You think it's a status thing too? I guess so. Mm. Oh, a moving front? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's more just like protecting your food. Mm. Just like, this is mine. That's interesting. This corner is mine. You can't get to it. Well, I think... They don't know they're doing it for that reason. Of course. But it's interesting that your partner is picking up on that and going into fight mode on it. Probably, yeah. There is something about that move that can leave you feeling... If you're not kind of creatively on fire yet in a scene, and somebody initiates with the sandwich is almost ready. Which is pretty boring. It's pretty boring, and there's there's almost too many responses available to you, and you kind of don't you have a sense of of like, well, how do I plug into this exactly? How do I relate to you? What's my what's my function yeah. here? And I think a lot of times the go to in that is to basically ignore the move and just go directly into some sort of backstory or some sort of thing that's a problem between the two of you that needs to be resolved. Which is never going to be resolved because if you resolve it, then you have nothing left in the scene to do. So you keep on feeding this thing that you're claiming you don't want to. Yeah, I guess another problem is that that initiation sucks. Yeah. But um, uh, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's interesting how those things start. But, you know, like they're fascinating to pick apart because of what they say about human behavior. But Mm -hmm. as a teacher, it's not worth going that big into it. You'll put some in their head forever. Yeah. So you just got to be like, make eye contact. Yeah. Yeah. Because that usually also just fixes it. Like, just look over your shoulder, check in. And that usually remedies the problem. Yeah. I like the handshake analogy. I've been been digging that one. I used to have a more complicated one. What was that? An inbound pass for basketball. Uh, Yeah, I don't get it. (laughs) <laughs> you're over, you're not sorry, even it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's still an accurate metaphor. I believe it. But uh headshakes easier. Yeah. I, I I call that the magic circle. I call that taking some time to be in the magic circle together as opposed to being two people. Sometimes I'm watching scenes and I sort of feel like it's just two people standing in two completely different universes who happen to be on stage with each other and they're both becoming increasingly frustrated that nothing is leaving one universe to go to the other universe. So you got to assert early yeah. on in the scene that you're sharing the exact same universe, the same circle. Yeah, it's pretty common after an opening. Yeah. Both people are connected to the opening, not to each other. Well, I, we, this is interesting I, because I think in in Magnet's approach to Harold in particular, uh-huh. I think one of the big Which differences... Which I don't totally know. Yeah. It, you it, should tell me. It's a little less game-oriented than UCB's approach. Yeah, can't I, be more. Uh, hard to be. Um, I think the, the two big differences are how we approach second beats. And I can't speak for everybody in the school, but certainly the way that I teach it. Uh-huh. Uh, um, I tend to focus on second beats as being a little bit more... Um, extensions of the first beats rather than sort of literal direct heightening. Like I, I kind of teach uh-huh. once you kind of have your source scenes established, you're basically following each of those storylines to wherever it is that they're going. And right. as you're following them deeper and deeper, you're beginning to discover kind of resonance between them. But the bigger uh, uh, difference I think in the schools of thought are use of opening. I think we're pretty casual at Magnet with the way that we use opening. It's more or less to explore the topic and and generate some possible characters but we don't stay terribly literal to the opening when going into the show itself yeah yeah that's it let's get into that that's interesting yeah what are the i mean i'm sympathetic to that yeah but like what is let's get pragmatic about it Mm -hmm. what is the payoff what, uh, what do you get out of that approach? Or let me, I'll say it this way. Let me be, I'll say what you get out of the other approach. It's yeah. more clear. And, and what the shortcoming is. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, if you do an opening and you're like really going for like premise and game, right? You're looking to like get something funny and start with something funny, mm. which is, um, okay, so the advantage of that is you get something funny early. There is a 
potential for a payoff in form of a laugh early, mm-hmm. which can reassure the people on stage that they've done something, can reassure the audience that it's going somewhere, especially good for a non-improv audience. I feel like ASCAT is a show that is really built for a non-improv audience. Mm-hmm. Accessible opening, premises early, payoffs early. Um, or the Armando, similar, I would think, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, ASCAT just basically is an Armando where you have permission to do bad improv to be funny. Um, you know, permission to fuck around. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, the downside is that your discovery can be a little rushed and not so rich and scenes can be thin. I would... I would guess the downs. So, so the upside of not being having so much pressure on a premise, I'm going to say what I think. You correct me and tell sure, me what you yeah. think. Is so if I have an opening and I'm being a little more loose with it and just taking characters and ideas, and there's not pressure to pull a premise or game, and it's more like themes and moods and characters and half ideas. Good side of that is okay. I can connect more. I can be more committed. This can be more a bit more real. Uh, it's more freedom for me to find myself in it mm-hmm. and I can kind of get my pitch that I'm good at hitting a little bit easier. I would think that's the advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, so the yes and and the agreement is richer. Downside is I would think it could meander more before anything funny happens and it's less, it's like less aggressively entertaining. Mm-hmm. And so if the people aren't funny naturally, the show's going to ramble around and the Pressure to find a game or premise kind of is like a, a like a like it's cynical. It's like no, entertain the audience now. Yeah, do it now. That's what you're there for. I can see good and bad sides of it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I agree with that pretty much. It, it there's for me another another plus side to a less premise based approach to the opening just has to do with the kind of. Um, group mind at the beginning of the show. Like I treat openings a lot when I'm running them as, um, uh, gifting each other with, you know, what this suggestion brings to my mind. So, so what I mean would be if I do something in an opening, let's say I come in and I do a, a short character monologue in the opening, I would then avoid touching that character for the rest of the show. That's I'm leaving it out there for somebody else in the group to pick up should they be so inspired. Once uh-huh. I get my idea out there, I'm actively looking for somebody else's thing that's inspirational yeah. to me. That's more groupy. A little bit more groupy and 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 I think a little bit I think what you lack in kind of the pure entertainment value at the top of the show, you kind of gain in a sense of um being respected by the people that are on stage with you. Because if if somebody comes on out and they do something really awesome with my idea from the opening, I tend to feel a little bit happier to be on stage with them. I feel a little right, bit... Right, right, yeah, you know, it's like a compliment. Yeah, but I also agree the downside to it can be you're maybe not, especially for a non-improv audience, you're not hitting very directly what's going to be entertaining about this or being able to hit sort of what the funny thing is just yet. And you do run that risk kind of meandering a little bit, you know? Yeah, I've um, I've seen a lot of shows like that. Um, I've seen them bad both ways. Yeah, I've seen shows that are so aggressively trying to be funny right away that they're desperate and thin, and it's annoying. Just like 
somebody in real life who wants to be funny is annoying. And shows that are aggressively trying not to be funny and entertaining immediately that are rambling and boring. And, that never get anywhere and you're yeah. like, could, is everybody sad? What's, Why is everybody in the yes. show so fucking sad? Yeah. Does everyone have cancer? This is bullshit. And that bums the shit out of me when there's that kind of artificial heaviness. Where, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're, they're, and I do feel that way that it's kind of, we're afraid that we're not going to be funny with this, so instead we're going to be serious about it. Yeah. And and for me, it's a thing of, I, I, I'm very happy watching people behave sincerely on stage. And yeah. I probably can tolerate watching watching that longer than a lot of other people can. But I hate, like, fake, fake seriousness yeah. to me is just as bad as, like, fake comedy where you're aggressively yeah. doing something that's not <laughs> we, funny yet. It's artificial and it's manipulative. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. You're, yeah, you're, it's just as bad as any kind of desperateness. You're, you're going for effect rather than actually exploring the resources that are in front of you to find what's valuable about this, what's well, yeah. worthwhile here. You know, the weird side effect of this dumb world we're in is, like, uh, it's theater, right? It's, not, it's on stage, so therefore good actors and people who can connect with themselves and, and connect with the moment and be present and be emotive. That's powerful, right? Like good mm. acting mm. is powerful. Um, and, but we, because it's a comedy thing, it attracts so many non-actors mm-hmm. who are just don't even really have the built basic building blocks of actors. They're these like emotionally distant back of the classroom commenters mm-hmm. who come to improv so they've never done acting. That's not exclusively true. Plenty of people with acting background try to do improv. Put an awful lot. Don't but of the yeah. comedy set, right? Yeah. And I, I was in that group, and a lot of my friends were. Improv is their first exposure to acting. Mm-hmm. So when in class there's some exercise that pushes you to commit and to be serious, it's like the first time you've ever even conceived of it. Yeah. And so it goes like pretty good in class, and it's just magic. You know what I mean? So like you you give disproportionate attention to that, like for shows. You're like, oh, I'm I'm going to do every show like an Oscar winning mm-hmm. scene, and then it's like, well, no, you're not good enough to do that by yeah. itself. And also the scene doesn't merit it, and it's fake. Yes. And you're just forcing a move. That that thing I mean, that, if you're learning, whatever you're trying sure. something out, and it's cool. But like, I think that's what it is. It's like non actors. Get go crazy because, because this because acting is new to them. Yeah. Um. I have I talk with Michael Delaney a lot about this. You know, teacher mm-hmm. performer at UCB, good friend of mine. We're trying to write a book, and uh, just our own incompetence that's holding us up. A lot of like Michael's thoughts I really like, and I'm trying to help him write them down. Uh, and one of the things we talk about, I say this tentatively. We might change it, but like Delaney made the observation that like, oh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, I bet you people who were studying improv were already actors. Mm -hmm. Like they came to it via their theater program. They liked acting and then they used improv as a tool and some like method class. And then maybe they did improv games as an exercise. Then they kind of got into like doing that as a funny thing, you know? Or, you know, Second City originally was like theater kids Mm -hmm. would go to Second City, not stand-up comedians. Mm -hmm. But then, like, this is a generalization, lots of exceptions to this. But then, like, by the 90s, mid-90s and later, comedy nerds were going to improv. Right. Stand-up comedians, uh, sketch people were going to improv, not via the theater. So, like, 1985, if you're doing an improv class in Chicago, hypothetically, I don't know anybody like this, but, like, your mindset is the stage and Mm -hmm. directors and plays. 2005, you're thinking Saturday Night Live and, like, sketch shows and like, and, uh, and Zach Galifianakis. Mm -hmm. And so 
you don't know, <laughs> you're not suited for the stage. You're, we can't do cuts to videos or weird timoneric effects. So you don't have the mindset. Yeah. So a lot of your improv classes are just like getting you to forget about all that and slow down and be in the moment and just know what a stage feels like. Yeah, totally. And then you're like, then you get into that. And so then all you want to do is like stagecraft. Yeah. And you forget, no, actually your little comedy nerd should come back now. Yeah. Like you should try to be a little silly. Or well, I think like it's a different Is kind of. I just talking of... for 10 minutes? No, it was like a minute. All right. It was like, it was, time is different on a podcast. It was like, <laughs> it was like 30 seconds. I, I, I think that uh, like great acting in an improv scene, though, is not necessarily the kind of great acting you would see in a great, in like an acting school. Uh, it, yeah. Because great acting in improv scenes, you can have people who are really terrible actors. Yeah. But there's a. Uh, there's an honesty and a sincerity to the way that they play. You see it a lot in right, level right, one right. students where it's just, they don't know what they're doing at yeah. all, but there's this incredible sincerity and, yeah. and, and they make even the simplest thing just like really fascinating to this watch. True. Yeah. That to me is a major goal. And actually I want to pick your brain on that. Uh, I should say, I do want to get a little bit into, into your life and how you right. started improvising. But before we back up, um, you also run, Easily one of the best improv blogs around, Improv Nonsense, oh, uh, uh, which everybody should check out. Um, and you have a lot to say on that blog about <laughs> honesty. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm I'm curious to pick your brain a little bit about what you mean when you talk about honesty on stage, because that's one of those interesting. Words. I think it's what you said. It's just like not forcing it. Yeah, just being genuine in the moment, which is super difficult. Yeah, get. I mean, it's hard. But if you can just like accept that whatever's going on is true yeah. and then react however you honestly feel, the audience will at least be compelled to keep watching. Yeah. But that's hard to do. You have to imagine all the stuff is true that's not true and then have the empathy to be in that moment and without getting like a lot of shoulds involved. Uh, it's really hard. I've been running uh, uh, a warm-up game recently called I'd Love To, and the way it works, you just turn to the person next to you in the circle and you invite them to some kind of activity. Hey, Will, do you want to uh, take a sip of my coffee? And then you just go, I'd love to. Uh-huh. And then you do it. And then yeah. you, you turn to the next person or not. And you let it run a bunch of rounds until people start to get kind of creative. And it's like, hey, Will, you want to uh, hold my hand and walk with me around the training center for two minutes? I'd love to. And then you just leave the room and do that for two minutes. Okay. And it's sort of like a warm-up to get into... Uh, um, recently when I've been teaching people to think about kind of playing their scenes a little bit harder, uh, I'll be framing it in terms of inviting your partner towards some kind of action at the top of the scene. Instead of starting with the sandwich is almost ready, which leaves them in a position where they have to kind of wonder how they relate. Um, you know, you invite them to some kind of action. Uh, uh, you know, Hey, Will, can you, uh, can you just sing to me for a minute while I, while I, uh, you know, like whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind it is, um, then you just do that. Mm-hmm. And usually what I end up having to coach people to do is like, just do what you're being asked to do. Don't do more than that. Don't add to it. Just really do it to yeah. the best of your abilities. And I'd say like 75% of the time with nothing else added to the scene, it ends up leading to these really fascinating, wonderful little moments and little glimpses of things going on between people. These, the, the thing that gets into what I think of as good improv acting, which is not like big, there's just something kind of like direct and sincere about it. There's, yeah. no, there's, there's no bullshit laid on top of it. But that's different than honesty, right? Yeah. Because you have to say, I'd, 
you're kind of in that exercise. They have to say, I'd love to. Mm-hmm. They don't vet what they actually think about it. Right, sure. So here's how, let me ruin that nice little moment. I agree that's a nice warm-up. I think that's really good. Jordan Klepper does one called Totally Totally, which is just sort of like, it's warm-up-ish, I think, or maybe he does it as an exercise right after warm-ups. Mm-hmm. It's, it's some kind of very simple thing you do a lot of reps with, which is like where after the initiation, you have to start every line with Totally Totally. Mm-hmm. And you can't do questions. So the first line will be something like, you know, I'd like some tea and you have to go, Oh, totally, totally. Tea would be great. And it gets you in that kind of just a grieveful mindset. Yeah, yeah. It's really good for some lower improv levels, but that grates on me because it doesn't tell, I mean, I, I get it. Like I love that exercise, but I would ruin it by parsing it this way. I think I'm going to use my handshake metaphor again. The scene has to start with a handshake. Mm-hmm. So you got to have an, I'd love to, or a totally, totally mindset at the beginning, huge dividends, being in the same magic circle with that initial connection and so many problems are from dissing the handshake. Mm-hmm. But after the handshake, if you've shaken hands correctly, you've really connected, then you're free to start getting yourself in there. Oh, I agree with that completely. And people can't make that switch. They're either obstinate from the get-go, yeah. which they don't, then they don't shake hands. Or fake agreeable throughout Yeah, or they're everything. fake agreeable throughout. I never get to know what you think about it, and yeah. that's boring. And yeah. It's just a little switch. Shake hands. I'd love to. Enjoy the tea. That's all true. You can't change that. And now you're in it. Yeah. Now, now what do you think about stuff? Yeah. That's hard to do. I agree. And I, do, I think that the, it's that first agreement that's really important in the scene. The rest of it, it becomes artificial if you're just arbitrarily Yeah, between the two, it's more, you'd rather err on the side of yes. Like, that's how it always works better. But, like, I'm thinking about, I saw Chris Gethard's level two grad show because he was in my brother's class, UCB. This back in 2000. And didn't know that Chris Gethard was going to be one of the best improvisers I'd ever know at that time. Mm-hmm. I just saw a skinny kid from Jersey who looked like he was 12 that was in my brother's class. And he was in a scene with this guy, I think Jason Spiro, somebody, second beat. They were on the side of the highway. And the scene was kind of going nowhere, from what I remember. It was like, it was like a talky, conversational scene. And Jason said, like, what do you think... Um, what are we going to do until the repair truck gets here or something like that? You know, maybe we should read a book. And Chris goes, yeah, I've been fascinated with the idea of the panopticon. And it wasn't like a smarty pants thing. It was something that Chris, the real Chris was right. thinking about. Yeah. Uh, it happens to be a smarty pants thing to bring up. But I just remember like perking up in my seat and being curious what that was. Yeah. And it was just Chris talking about this thing he liked. It was like an honest, real small moment of somebody talking about a book they liked. Yeah. I remember being like, that's a smart move. It's like, that guy's got kind of guts to just like be himself in the middle of a dying scene in his level two grad show when maybe you kind of wish you were being great. Yeah. Kind of poised. And it was uh, there's, like, that's a good ego. That's just sort of like, I'm in this scene. This is something I'm thinking about. Yeah. Because I still remember it, you know, and it's been like 15 years. Well, that goes back to me to what you were saying about arguments of... Uh, um, Philosophical debates. Yeah, let's really hear what you think about something. Yeah, Be- because it, like I, I like the idea of opening doors for each other in scenes. I like the idea of of looking for opportunities to 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 hear what we think about stuff. I, I find that really exciting, and I, I'm really fascinated when I just get to hear people actually f- actually express their feelings and their thoughts. You getting but like an insight into somebody's. I mind. love it too. Here's the thing, though. You teach a lot. You're a thoughtful person. This is what I'm really into is like I, as a teacher, yeah, is like 
I think a lot of these rules are oversimplified mm-hmm. and they get applied. We have to give them scope. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like the totally, totally, I'd love to, that is a top of the scene necessity. Right. And that does require some work to be able to do that. But there's a scope on that. Once you're into the scene and the world exists, you don't need to do that so much anymore. Mm. Now I need to know what you, you have to really be in it and be honest with me. Mm. And you got to say no when you want to say no. And you got to like complain when you want to complain. With the little like philosophical debates are good, wizard battles are bad. You can't use your powers of reality to win. You just have to like react to the world without changing it for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some scope on the rules is what's good. That's interesting. I think the UCB tried to do this, you know, Besser uh, in their Besser got really into um how yes and is overrated. Like this was like one of his big like revelations a couple years ago that he was really excited about, which was like you should yes and until you find a game and then it's just if this is true what else is true. Mm-hmm. Uh And that was an attempt to put scope on rules. Like Mm -hmm. you should have this yes and mindset, discovering, agreeing, no transaction scenes, no you know, like your basic scene work mantras, however you want to express them. Mm -hmm. Then once you find a game, you switch into an exploring you don't need to like keep expanding the world at that point anymore. You need to like now it's all gotta be starting from and in terms of your discovery, Mm -hmm. you know, the game or whatever you want to call it. And regardless of what you think about that particular mantra, I, I like that. I think that generally works, but it was an attempt to be like, you know, there's phases of a scene and the rules change when you're in different phases. Right. Your behavior has to change. You can't yes and... If there's been a pattern where five times in a row you have stood up for the government, if you're going to break that pattern, you have to... It costs a little bit more. You have to... Um, you're, uh, I'm not articulate enough anymore. Like later in the scene, rules have changed. Mm-hmm. Things have solidified. And things that would be great in the first line would no longer be good in the, at the end. Sure, of course, yeah. If you're someone who loves the government and I say, hey, do you want to like burn your draft card? You can't go, oh, I'd love to. Yeah. Because it wouldn't make any sense. Right. So the rules have changed there. Uh, I think a lot of teaching is sort of like trying to, in a way without burden making it complicated, like attach simple scopes to it. Top of scene play, exploration play, post fun play, something like that. Yeah, it, it's difficult because, the, at least for me, the way that I think and the way that I teach, the more I try to formalize stuff, the more I end up having to explain all the thousands of exceptions. Yeah, you I, know? Know, I know, I find that true. It, it, for me, it's so much more of, I'm looking for opportunities to kind of... Uh, help guide people into the place in their scene where they're, they're more focused on, on what's happening between themselves and their partner and more focused on, on this kind of magic circle than they are on the expectations of the other people in the class or the expectations of me right, as a right. teacher. And then I kind of feel like my job then is to point out when they hit something that's really great and really unique to that scene so that they start to develop an awareness that it's not really about playing by these rules and being robotic in the sense that I'm just, I'm just obeying rules the entire time. Yeah. It's more about developing the sensitivity to how I can find myself now in the show so that I'm open and receptive to kind of serve the needs of this particular show and this particular scene and this particular person that I'm I don't know. I mean, I do know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I, you sound like a great teacher. doesn't surprise me. But, ah. Uh, I am in favor sometimes of being very rigid in a 
structure when you're teaching. Mm-hmm. I had a tenth, my 10th grade English teacher, Mr. Phelps, uh, taught us essay writing, mm-hmm. and we had to put the uh, thesis statement of our essay at the last sentence of the first paragraph. And then every paragraph after that had to have a topic sentence was the first sentence of the paragraph. And then the final paragraph had to restate the thesis as the first sentence and then summarize. Mm-hmm. And you were not allowed to vary from that. And when he graded your paper, he would look at it and before reading it, circle the last sentence of the first paragraph and read that to you. Be like, is that your main point? And if mm-hmm. it wasn't, he threw it out. Mm-hmm. It was pretty young. It was like an intimidating experience. Yeah. But he was just rigid about it, and somebody would argue, it's like, well, that's not my voice. And he like, said, you're too young to have a voice. Mm-hmm. You have to learn how to do this first. It's not that it can't work another way, but you're doing it this way. Yeah. So just accept it. Yeah. And it's a good teaching practice. Yeah. Like, learn a specific pattern that is a good one. You can acknowledge that it's not the end-all, be-all, but it's measurable and repeatable, and he showed us how we, you know, he circled the last sentence and read it out loud. So I started doing that when I wrote my essays. I would do that because I knew he was going to do it. Yeah. And it did make my writing better. It made me commit to ideas. So sometimes when I'm teaching, I will be, is dogmatic the word? Like, I'll just be kind of like, you're going to do it this way. Yeah. Handshake, and then immediately be honest. Yeah. Sometimes I'll be like, I'll make a joke about it. Like if it's like a level four class where they've done it, I'll be like, all right, I want to, I want you to have an unusual thing in the fifth line. Yeah. <laughs> like, which is like, obviously that's dumb. That very, very challenging. That very challenging. But I'll just be like, just do it. You just, what if you just had to, what if I just say you had to, yeah. like, that's the form. Yeah. You're not allowed to argue with me. Just do it. We're going to just do a bunch of them in a row. Yeah. Just for the sake of having a repeatable, measurable task. See, I like that because I like the sense of like personal discipline that it fosters, and I like the sense of directness. You have to. You have I mean, to if be, you're accountable in how you present it, if you're like, this is not the. Of adult, course, but, but gonna, you're teaching people to be deliberate in their choices. You yeah. have to say, "This is what I mean. I'm yeah. saying what I mean. I'm not feeling around for it." Yeah. Personally, I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah. I, just because of the way my own brain works, there's a part of me that that you know, drifts out, you know, yeah. whenever it's laid out of like, do it this I way. I mean, you need a mixed diet. Like you need some class, some portions like that, and then some more like exploring things. Well, I think you also just got to kind of find where, I mean, this is maybe like too touchy feely, but like you got to find how you operate best. Yeah. And that's true. And you got to do that, you know? And, and ideally if you're honest with yourself, then you're open enough to, challenge that as well you're open enough to be like i need more discipline in my diet i do oh yeah i, I don't if you're a good student you'll try on different things yeah because the teacher's asking you to and then you'll decide later if it's for you or not yeah but that's definitely the most productive approach if you're a student anyway for sure i had plenty of classes where i was like i don't think this is working but i'll i'm here I'm yeah i'm gonna do it now yeah but i really i i improv's group hugginess sometimes rubs me the wrong way mm-hmm. It's a little too soft. I mean, I love it, and I get tired of it. I love... Okay, when I first moved to New York City, I tried to do stand-up comedy for like a year and a half, Mm -hmm. and I'd never done anything before, never been on stage. It was like 1996, 97. I'd go to like open mics, printed out jokes in my hand, read them at the microphone. Yeah, they weren't good. They weren't spectacularly bad. They were just like a lot of... Taking out the insane people who do open mics, they were like a lot of boring open mic stuff. Right. Uh, it was kind of exciting, 
But I didn't really like a lot of the stand-ups. There was something that just felt real dickish about those rooms to me. I was very lonely and insecure at that time of my life, and I didn't respond well to the vibe. Nobody was actually being an asshole to me, but, you know, the one-upmanship and the joking, the sharpness, I didn't like it. Took an improv class at Chicago City Limits, which I never even really knew anything about long-form improv. I think I'd read a book on Second City. I hadn't heard of or read Truth and Comedy, and I couldn't quite tell what improv... It seemed like just making up sketches. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite get it. Mm -hmm. So CCL was like um, long-form improv class. This is 99? This is 96, actually. Okay. I took one in 96. Uh, I took my first UCB class in 99. but mm-hmm. 96, and I really loved it, and I loved the group hug niceness of it. You know, I loved the whole, like, you can't deny your partner. You treat them like poets and geniuses, mm-hmm. and you got to, like, patience. And, like, it was, like, a very welcome balm on my little insecure self. Mm-hmm. And I loved that culture. Uh, so I do love, and I, you know, and a lot of respect for each other. And like, we're in this together. And yet we're trying to be funny. It's like, oh, good. This is so much nicer than stand up. Yeah. I love this. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years. But then I got in pay- I was like, I would get hungry for the old sharpness. Mm-hmm. I was like, but we are going to be funny, right? Like, we're allowed to be funny. Mm-hmm. One thing I did, I do really like about Besser was, is that he, um, is the only improv teacher I've ever had who says, like, be funny. Mm-hmm. Like, what's funny about that? And I, I understand why that is a counterproductive approach sometimes. But it's a relative to the normal context of improv teachers, yes. I found it a welcome relief. Yeah, It was like just being honest. You want it to be funny, right? <laughs> the first workshop I ever saw with him, he asked everybody in the room, uh, why are you doing improv? And everybody was raising their hands saying like, oh, or no, what do you like about improv? And it was sort of like, I like, you know, the, the, the mutual respect. You know, I like honesty. I like finding truth. Things that are all true and good. And then he goes, no one wants to be funny. No one likes it because it's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was kind of like, yeah, he's right. It's dumb that that wasn't even in the top 15 things that we said. You think that you're afraid to say that? Yeah, it's like, it's like a dirty word. Right. You know, we're supposed to be in an art form and nobility. And we're trying to keep our egos down and be like, and I was... I laughed out loud when he did that. I was like, that is so hilarious. Yeah. Like, how did we miss? Like, that? of course that's part of it. Yeah. I totally understand that, like, j- the word joke in a lot of contexts means removing yourself and commenting on a thing, which is death for mm-hmm. improv. You don't want to do that. But can we just, can we take that word back and just be like, no, being funny is okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, as long as we can acknowledge and understand the ways in which it's good. So, like, sometimes as a teacher, I go back and forth. I, I think I, I, uh, I'll try to be touchy-feely and open sometimes. It's not my nature, but I will try to do it that way. And other times I'll be all pragmatic and just be like, no, this is, this is, a, this is a pragmatic approach that will work. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm the opposite of that, and I've tried it well, too. We should team up. Yeah, it, you should like you should get in there and get him like trusting and happy. Then I'll be in there like, all right, forget what Lewis said. Get on stage and do a limerick. <laughs> I would actually fucking. I love being pimped into shit. Like that. <laughs> if you told if you told me a strange idea in the fifth line, I don't know that I could do it. But if you were like, do a limerick now, yeah. there's just something about like, okay, I fucking love that stuff. 
yeah. don't think I don't think that my touchy feeliness is like I don't think you. I think your stuff's great. Well, I'm thanks. I appreciate it. But uh, well, it's just I know like when I try to do the opposite and be very direct and pragmatic, like people don't come back to my classes. There's something of like there's something that when I'm hitting it like that, I, I, have I think a, I hit that shit out of the park. I think that's my jam. Yeah. Well, and I'm the opposite. I, mine mine happens to be the the kind of like softer approach to it. Yeah. Somehow for me works in a way. I know exactly. I mean, when Michael you know, Delaney was my teacher, he made me think improv was a religion. Yeah. And when Andy Secunda was my teacher, it was like improv is a machine that we can build. Yeah. And they both worked for me. Yeah. But they, they, they lit up different parts of my head, for yeah. sure. Billy well, Merritt was like confidence, you know? Oh, totally. And fun. And fun. Oh, yeah. A great the time. The best. D- D- Delaney is going to make you doubt yourself. dissect it and doubt yeah, yourself yeah, yeah, and yeah. feel horrible. Yeah. It's like dissecting but, but a frog. But in an aspirational way. Oh, of course. That's the thing that I like about Delaney's classes. When I did it, it was a miserable experience. <laughs> was, I, don't, I don't think I had three seconds of fun in eight weeks of that class. But it sets the value. It sets the bar super high. Oh yeah, you know, like yeah. you're reaching for the stars with it, and it's yeah. something that's important. And and you know that there's a huge value in in yeah. hitting it hard. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I'll tell you my feelings about that too. Is okay. Like, I, I think that the the downside of that for me is is just practically speaking in classes, the number of people that I think get shut down by by that and then just kind of their confidence yeah. is shaken and they can't step up. Right, right. I've seen that happen too. The thing that I love about that is um, it cuts through the bullshit and it does cut through the thing of like, yeah, even as you're saying it, I was like, would I have the courage to raise my hand and say I'm here to be funny? Yeah. I don't know that I, I would. And, and and you are lying to you. Of course you're here to be funny. Yeah, it, that's, that's at least true. part of it. Like, it's insane that it wasn't like the, anybody said it. But you know what? I bet it's everybody's top Thing, the yeah. number one thing, and it's, tell me what got them into it. Absolutely, but you kind of dress it up and and you make it sound pretty, and you make it sound more more, you know, whatever egalitarian than it is. I get defensive about the UCB. Like I am a company man. I've been there forever. Yeah, I love teaching there. I'm really proud of it. Uh, and I am a self doubting man, so I'm also able to empathetically argue against UCB things in mm-hmm. a debate sort of fashion. Uh, you know, in the same way in an improv scene, I can take either side of an issue. But when it comes down to it, I love it. And I get very protective of it. And I get protective of game of this. And the things about it I get protective of is premise initiations and like hardcore gameplay. I totally know what you're saying. Like if you go too hard on that at the wrong time in somebody's development, you can shut them down and make it no fun and you can make them be disconnected from truthful acting and it's bad. Mm. But I, again, I, I, even though it's weird now, the UCB is so big. When I first started doing it, it wasn't so big. Uh, I think the general first thought mode of teaching improv is group hug we're all geniuses and people like Besser are rare who say like no be funny Mm -hmm. now Besser and the UCB are so big that it's not really rare anymore because he said he's because it's such a large presence in like the improv scape or whatever like that but I still think because it's counterintuitive I think of it as a needed minority voice I know it's totally weird to think of UCB as a minority voice but I think whoever is saying be funny start with the premise right Heighten. Not many people say it. Who's got the guts to raise their hand and say, your audience wants to know what's funny? Yeah. I think it's 
And so my, def- you know, I can feel it now in me. Sure, like, yeah. I'm, I'm like defensive. Like I'm like, no, that that's. I totally hear when people say like, "Oh, game of the scene," like you know, that's that approach like shuts me down or like that makes me too cerebral in my head. I get that. I've gone through phases where I had to like throw it away and just work on like connecting to myself and acting. And when I teach, part of being pragmatic is like setting that aside and like, no, you got you're not putting your walls down. You're not being honest. I don't even think I say game that much when I teach. Yeah. But but I do get defensive about it. It's like, well, who else has got the guts to to demand that their players make their shows funny? Yeah. Like who else has the courage to tell their people early to the point where it like turns people off. And I and I'm kind of like that is what makes that is what that is what makes my place fun. I kind of love it. That's a fair Delaney point. Delaney was my second level teacher and I did feel like garbage but I, and he didn't he wasn't a game you know, uh, preacher. He was a truth preacher, yeah. acting preacher. But I, I loved how hard it was. Yeah. Because I did these classes at CCL. I had really good teachers there, actually. But they were very, like, fun and easy and painless. And then in my second level UCB class with Delaney, I felt like garbage. And he was just like, you're not acting right. My first UCB coach told me in my, in my very first ever Herald team practice, you're boring. He goes, like, you're, all your characters are the same. But he didn't, he didn't say it that meanly. He was like, your characters are all the same, and I'm getting a little bored. Mm. And it was harsh, yeah. but I kind of loved it. I was like, you know what? I, tell it to me. I'm going to rise above it. Yeah. And I mean, Bester still terrifies me. I'm 44 years old. Not terrifies me, but like his standards are so high that I'm like, I got I to gotta step up if yeah. I'm doing improv with Bester. I, and I kind of love it. Yeah. But I get that it's not for everybody. Well, and I get that too, though. I, I get the challenge of having that person who inspires that in you that you got to keep yourself as sharp as possible and you yeah. push yourself. I mean, I'll, I'll freely admit what I think my major limitation is as a teacher and as a performer too. Yeah. I, think, I think it's my big weakness. As a teacher, um, I go into it with the mindset of my first job is to create an open environment that makes people yeah. open and comfortable to this experience to yeah. reduce their level of self-consciousness. Yeah. I mean, that sounds awesome. Make them more open to each other, make them more open to this experience yeah. and have them intuitively find their way into something that they can competently pull off so that by yeah. the end of this class, you're I mean, able to do decent shows that are entertaining that you feel good about. Then the idea in mind that as their confidence builds over the levels, eventually we get down to, Sharper and sharper notes, and 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 yeah, and, that totally makes sense. Um, my limitation is, I think I set it up that eventually I'm going to get down to sharper and sharper notes, and then I think I don't get down to sharper <laughs> and sharper notes. And I think that the same. Well, thing, the real the real answer from the students' perspective is a mixed diet. Like it's talking about Magnet. Armando Diaz was my absolute absolute huge breakthrough teacher. Yeah, I still to this day, when I am nervous in an acting situation, because I had a couple small parts on TV, I said bragging. And when I'm in the situations which are high stakes for me and I like want to be good, yeah. I um, uh, we got plenty of time mm-hmm. uh, for my life, I mean. Yeah. But uh, uh, Armando, um, I still think about Armando's class. When I am nervous and I got to step into a scene, I just did a one-line part on Playing House. Mm. One line. Not that big a deal. But I'm nervous for it, right? Yeah. You don't do your one line, right? It's actually scarier with just one yeah, line. Yeah, because you don't have any momentum. You have yeah. to like, walk on the court and hit your shot. Yeah. I think about Armando, my level three class with Armando. He was still at UCB then. And just like on the back line, I felt good. I felt like I was funny and good and it was simple and like demystified. Mm -hmm. And I need that feeling sometimes. That's like sense memory for me. Like I literally imagined the class and the back line. 
I paste it over the reality of the set, and then I step out and do the line. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You, you conjure that feeling for yourself? Oh, yeah. Very deli- I'm big on visualizations to yeah. like manage my own fear. Yeah. And remembering classes where I felt good, I bring them. And Armando's was the first one. Yeah. I had all my teachers forget it. Kevin Mullaney for level one. Mm-hmm. Very like encouraging and good, good teacher. But level one it was such a blur. It was like all so new. Level two was Delaney. Totally in my head. Loved it, but did not feel confident. Mm-hmm. Was inspired, but humbled and mm-hmm. diminished. <laughs> <laughs> and then at level three was Armando, and I like found it again. Yeah, I was like, oh. And it was just so many reps. He laughed at everything that was good. He was just so nice. He was the yin to Besser's yang, I thought. I learned like a Besser lot more. Besser was yang. Besser was like, beef my Yes. And, and Rhonda was like, oh, let's try it again. And yeah. just... You know, the tone should be like this. I learned so much more from Armando just by him laughing at stuff that I did. I, as a teacher, I think back to that. I was like, oh, it wasn't that... I mean, he also gave great notes, but you want the validation, so the teacher's laughter is the note. Yeah. And whatever he laughed at, I would just do more. And he laughed at the good stuff. I have a notebook at home. I was doing Delaney's Level 3 uh, simultaneously with uh, Armando's like Back to Basics class. Uh-huh. It was my first time with Armando. And I have a notebook back home where literally the entire notebook is filled with notes from Delaney's class. It's just like tons yeah, and yeah, tons yeah, of yeah. notes, including Dell's rules pasted to the inside of the book and everything. Yeah. And I have exactly... With the kitchen rules? Uh, uh, no, it's the more elaborate... The one that he got from... Um, oh, geez. Uh, Tamara, Tamara Wilcox? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The committee, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I have one note for Armando in the book, and the note is, let your wear give you a who. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I totally agree. Like, I, I remember Armando's class, my, I think my brother would stand by me in this. One of his things, it, simplifi- it was a simplifying experience. Yeah. And these rules were too simple from what I needed to do eventually, but what I needed at the time, they were great. And it yeah. was like, all right, second beats. He'd say, all right, if your first beat is like, uh, uh, <laughs> then your second beat should be, uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> like he was just doing the tone yeah. of like the back and forth and like that I needed stuff like that. Early on that yeah. is I think the best way to wrap your head around doing that stuff because he would it, side coach me to be more emotive just by waving his hands in yeah. an up gesture motion yeah. and I'd see it and I would do it. Yeah. I didn't have room for any other side coaching yeah. in my little brain. Okay. So I think that I personally as an improviser one of my shortcomings is I, I have gotten hooked to, I enjoy that feeling of improv feeling easy. I like the feeling that uh-huh. I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, running into overdrive and overheating my system. Yeah. I like to feel that I'm there and it's simple and it's developing nicely. And you know, I've been able to forge out a, a nice little corner for myself over the years. So <laughs> okay. I'm doing okay with it, <laughs> but I don't think I keep myself challenged enough. I don't think what you're saying about... Probably true of every veteran improviser. No doubt. We all find our little corners. No doubt. You just said that uh, uh, that the Armando second beat note for you was great yeah. at that time, but yeah. maybe too simple for what you later needed. Yeah. Can, can you amplify on that? Because oh, yeah. I, I'm very, very Well, it gets to be like to At first, it was a simplifier where it like freed me mm-hmm. that I could just do that and then, I w- and then I had room left over to react honestly. Mm-hmm. But then later it's like it became a formula that was like a rut. I would feel the tone of the first beat and just force the second beat to be that tone. Right. But now I didn't need it. I had the capacity to like process faster. And so I could just basically not every scene, not every second beat needs to follow the same template as the first beat right. to honor it. Yeah. There's different ways to play it. 
You can just thematically, you get the same game in a totally different tone. Yeah. You can, uh, you could just do a theatrical sort of second beat where you make more revelations about the characters that are, that, that are consistent with the first beat, but are surprising. Mm -hmm. You could do that if you want. Um, and I had, it's, it's all, it's all like, are you being present and honest in the moment or are you relying on formulas and shoulds and you're no longer like tuned in? Mm -hmm. You, you have to be an honest reporter of the moment to the audience. The audience is watching you. So you have to report honestly what's going on. That's interesting. So if you're not doing that because you're just obeying a rule you heard, then you suck. Yeah. But it's, but it's funny because it, what is a freeing simplification one day is a binding rule the next day yes. just because you grew. Yeah. And you just have to like let it. Everything's training wheels. It seems like yeah, I mean everything, but many many or like pieces of advice. Or, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you have to let it go. Yeah, it's not sure anymore. Well, you know, the cl- no teaching scenes, no transaction scenes. That's pretty good advice for some in their first couple improv classes to get them to more like bold decisions while yeah. they're being so fearful and scared. A nice clear rule they can follow, like no teaching scenes. Yeah. That's pretty good, but that's super dumb. Totally not necessary. Very early. Or no questions. Yeah. No questions is a nice, simple, easy thing to follow in your level one class. I can totally see why that's something people would teach. But it's not true. Yeah. You can ask questions all the time in an improv scene. Yeah. Once, once you have been able to just be in a scene and yes and it, right? Yeah, totally. You can ask questions all the time in an improv scene. I do too. I... My brother and I to this day have only improvised transaction scenes. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're they're pretty good. <laughs> How long have you and your brother been playing together, Kevin Hines? Uh, I think we started two thousand and four. Who's been improvising longer? Me by like six months. Okay. Well, I, I was at UCB six months before him. I did these CCL classes for three years, but not intensely, and I don't really count that as my improv life. Yeah. So I would say six months longer. Well, he he saw my level one grad show and wanted to do it. Okay. Cool. Um. And I was, it was, I was glad. I was cool. Was it, was it odd for you at first when you guys started improvising, or did you kind of immediately fall into step together? Uh, I think we fell into step. Yeah. Um, I think we were worried that we would, if we would be good or not. I don't think we were worried about being on the same page. I think we knew that we would get each other and be able to like perform together, but yeah. would we be funny enough? We were two like low-energy straight men who had kept furrowed brows and framed up our funny scene partners. Yeah. Uh, I was on a team with Curtis Gwynn and John Gemberling, the funniest people in the universe. Yeah. And he was on teams like with John Gabris and like uh, Ellie Kemper, like geniuses. Yeah. So, you know, who wants to see Abbott and Abbott do a comedy routine? <laughs> you know, like that's what we were worried about. When uh, but we knew that we knew that we, I don't think we were that worried about connecting with each other. Yeah. It's, and, then it, and it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we killed it necessarily but we felt like it was good yeah yeah we were doing good shows pretty early how thinking of yourself as being the kind of like the grounder or the straight man in a lot of groups yeah um uh then finding yourself knowing that i need to be funny right now you're at an audition or you're on a tv show and you have your line or (laughs) you're just doing a show and you recognize it's like "I, i gotta be funny right now yeah how, what's your thought process? Like, how, how do you, this is like such a gigantic, ridiculous question. I'm asking you to summarize an entire philosophy of improvisation. Yeah, I don't mind. I like this shit. Uh, um, how do you be funny, Will Hines? That's a great question. It's terrifying. I don't, 
it's very situation specific. I'll either way undershoot it. I'll, I'll, I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but I'll be more deadpan and low energy than I ever have been in my whole life. Mm -hmm. That's one way I'll go. Mm -hmm. Like just get very still and be like, I am hilarious. You know, like that kind of approach Mm -hmm. that can work in some situations or I'll go bigger than they thought I was. I'll surprise them by how big I go. Mm -hmm. Like I'll just be cartoony, stand up straight, eyes, big slapstick, like finger. Just Mm -hmm. I'll just try to be as if I'm entertaining a one year old, Mm -hmm. you know, that's interesting. I can do that sometimes too. Yeah. But if I'm if it's like a TV show or even like a web series or something, usually somebody has cast me who knows me and they just want me to be like me, like yeah. some kind of like befuddled, dismissive authority figure. I don't think I've ever done a part where the adjective sad, resigned, or angry isn't part of the character <laughs> description. So I'm just like, I can bring that. That's like the note I have in my bones for whatever reason, so yeah. I can just do it. I No one's ever bringing me in to be like, Happy, uplifting, you know what I mean? Or yeah. like, go get him, coach. It's always like, sad, defeated man enters. Yeah. And I'm like, you got it. <laughs> I had the, uh, the worst audition of my whole life yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I was called in, and, and it was like one of those things where like we have an idea, and we just want you to do like 100 pitches off this idea or whatever. <laughs> it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, so you want me to like write for you? Kind yeah, of, yeah, but yeah, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just like came up with nothing and, and nothing at all. It was just like yeah. humiliating and defeating. And, and I walked away feeling like, was it for least, an ad agency? Yeah. Yeah. Those are the worst. The Anytime worst. an ad agency wants me to do anything, it's a nightmare. And they're usually very polite human beings. They were very nice. Yeah. But it's just like, it's a, it's a humiliation project. Yeah. And, and you walk away being like, I'm the least funny person alive. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I'll ever get funnier back. I, I don't know. Oh yeah. Do you ever get that where it's like, I don't Jesus. think I'll be funny again. Yeah. I, once every two weeks, I feel like that. Yeah. I'm not kidding. I have major confidence problems with being funny. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, because improv, I'm rarely doing anything alone. So it's always like with somebody else. Yeah. So I feel like it just one of us will be good. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I have a confidence in my ability to sense what's funny and catch it. But to generate it? Yeah. Oh, I don't know, man. Yeah. That is some scary shit. Yeah. I, 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 I kind of feel... I'm not a very, I don't think I'm a creative person. I don't think I'm a good idea guy, but I'm very good in other people's scenes. You yeah, know what I mean? I I'm, feel like that. I relate to that. Uh, I think it's like a, it's a straight man attribute. You're kind of, you, you sense where the goal is in a scene and you're able to kind of help somebody else get there. Yeah. But I can't spontaneously give you gold. I don't know where the hell it is. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you. I'm, I mean, I totally relate to that feeling. Yeah. But I also know that I am funny, right? You know what, what convinced me of it? It was a million years ago. I was on this Herald team called Monkey Dick, mm-hmm. which is an obscenity. I apologize for the name. And I was, I was like the, I felt like the normal one on a team full of like super funny people. Yeah. Uh, and they, they were funny and cartoonishly and huge. Like Curtis Gwynn was this like big, like incredibly creative, uh, like guy from an Adams family cartoon and John Gambling was like this mischievous like genius baby energy and Matt DeCosta was like a robot <laughs> of like anger and then Rob Latham was like this amiable dumb guy obviously not dumb but his right. persona on stage yeah very likable Andy Rocco was like this kind of blubbering idiot who stuttered and mispronounced things and then me and I just felt like what do I do in this but like 
I feel like I'm just like the Marilyn on the Munsters. Like mm-hmm. I'm just sort of like the boring. I'm just like the boring guy. And then one day we did an, uh, a practice. Seth Morris is our coach, and he had us all imitate each other. Mm-hmm. What he said was to channel each other. He mm-hmm. didn't say to imitate. He's like, all right, Curtis, you sit down. You five get up there. Everybody channel Curtis and improvise as Curtis, which essentially we're doing imitations. Most teams cannot help do this because you end up making fun of each other and mm-hmm. it's brutal, but we were in a weird place where we didn't give a shit. And we, we weren't being told to do that, but we can handle the inadvertent aspect of this being an imitation. Anyway, we all improvise as Curtis. And I found myself like improvising differently. You know, I was like being more bold and I was being like decisive and kind of alpha. I know, John, you sit down. Everybody improvises John Gemberling. We tried to all channel John Gemberling. Then it was my turn. I was terrified because I was like, what are they going to do? Yeah. I don't mind being made fun of. I was just worried they would have nothing. Yeah. And then they all did like very distinctive versions of me. I mean, they were making fun of me. But I didn't care. I was so glad just to be noticed uh-huh. and like known. I and have I could, charisma. I have personality. I've made an impact. Yeah, right. Like I have a shape. Right. And uh, it was like a little bit like persnickety and it was a little bit know-it-all, but it was also like a little bit ruffled. Yeah. And it was funny. Like they all, the funny thing was we all laughed at each other's version of ourselves. Yeah. When we all did Curtis, he was like, you guys are hilarious. <laughs> like we, we liked it when they tried to be like us. Yeah. And they were being like me. I, I felt so reassured that I existed. There's some, that's, that's an awesome way to put it. There's something so validating about knowing that like, I, I leave a mark on people. Yeah. Even if you're distorting it and kind of making fun of me a little bit, just knowing that, like, oh, you, you, you remember that I'm here. Yeah. It makes you feel uh, present. makes you feel alive. I, I got to say, if, you, if you'll excuse the fanboyness of it, yeah. uh, for, the, for the year or so that I was studying at UCB, I never missed a Harold night the entire time. And uh, oh, yeah. Monkey Dick was... By far my favorite team. Oh, that's when we were doing it? Yeah, I didn't. Oh, really? I, I never missed a Monkey Dick show. Oh, I and, love it. Uh, was it uh, our suits phase or not? In the suits phase. Yeah. It was awesome. You guys, Dynamo. Yeah. Uh, uh, really, really awesome. That was a great time for the team. It was, You guys were killing shows. You were the yeah, only team at I the time that. not doing openings. You were just going yeah. right into scenes. You were attacking them yeah. mercilessly. It, it, oh, there was a level of confidence and smarts to that team that was oh, like... I got to say, I love that you saw that because yeah. like that's been lost to history because Ruru happened after Monkey Dick, which is a much better team yeah. and, and sort of was like a better version of that. But it was born in Monkey Dick, you yeah. know? And uh, it was really fun to be at that. They, it, we were playing the people. That was the first team where I ever... We played the people more than the characters. Yeah. Like Curtis was Curtis. Yeah. No matter who he was being, and and Will Hines was Will Hines. No matter what, yeah. And at, at first, that was weird. You couldn't not be you, and that was restricted. But then we leaned into it, and it was really fun. Yeah, it was really fun and great. Well, if I can geek out on you, uh, you were the guy who I gravitated to when I would watch those shows. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I was always curious about like how is he going to respond. <laughs> I was always looking at you to see like okay what's because that's like the the real subtle response was coming out of you and I was always like he's going to make it really funny in a way that oh wow is not, that's a re- that's it's not a showy hear. move. I felt drowning the whole time in those shows really, but in a way that I appreciated was real. Cause see, here's, that's reassuring for me to hear. Yeah, I was I never I felt unconfident in an exciting way the whole time. Hmm. I knew those guys liked me. I didn't feel they didn't support me, but they were merciless on stage. Like if they didn't think something was funny, they would dismiss it yeah. immediately, which I found to be valuable later. But I mean, I've never been in another team like this, but, um, what I liked about that team at that time, and I'm so happy that you saw it. Like it was, I, cause I can't recreate it any other way was, uh, 
the whole thing about improv, like just not thinking ahead and just being very honest in the moment and not forcing it is hard for me. And I am cerebral enough that I can, at least in an intellectual way, think ahead a lot. And in like improv classes, I would like be very good at just like, this is the game. This is my next move. Or this is, I'm, I'm trying to support the next thing. But it wouldn't work. Like, people wouldn't react. I wasn't a good enough actor to make it land. And I knew I felt, like, fake in some way. It was very frustrating for me. I was like, why am I not connecting with people? I'm smart. Why is this not working? And then on that team, because they were so smart and aggressive and merciless, I had to let everything go hmm. and just respond to the last line as honestly as I could because they would not tolerate anything but an honest answer. So I had no control over what the game was, no control over what I was going to be. And if I just played the last moment, it worked. And it was free. I was like, oh, I'm being a real actor. Like, I'm just answering. Hmm. Uh, and because, it, and it worked on that team, it was so strange. Like, I've, I realized how to be in the moment, I think. Hmm. Um, I remember, like, a scene... Uh, I, I initiated a scene to Curtis Quinn like this on that team. I initiated, um, oh, uh, excuse me, a huge initiation. Sir, uh, you, you, you're the, uh, the shock jock on the local radio station. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind playing my record. It's a record I made years ago. Uh, I recorded here. It's a 45. Would you mind playing it? It's me and my banjo. Like, I think it was that long. Yeah. And Curtis looked at me and goes, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> what? Shut up. Get out of here. And walked off the scene. Wow. And it was hilarious. <laughs> it was so funny. Who says no and, like, shuts you down? Didn't even try to understand what I was saying. I mean, I think it was somewhat understandable what I was doing, but he didn't give a shit. Yeah. Because it was something too contrived, too arranged. Yeah not quite committed enough, too complicated. He just like shut it down. Wow. So I just had to stick to my guns for one more line. I was like, oh, but please, it's called rickety fence. Would you mind playing it? <laughs> and then he turned around and like engaged with me. But I remember thinking like, I like that he said no. Yeah. Like it was some sort of honesty in it. It like toughened me up. Huh, yeah. Like I had to like stick to my guns a little bit. Yeah. And and I was like, and then I realized later, he's not ignoring me. He said no. He took it in and he reacted. He didn't like just turn away and start talking about something else. He, he said like, get the fuck out of here, shut up. But that was in direct response to what I said. It kind of validates what you said in a way. It makes it real. Yeah. But even though it's a little brutal, it makes it real by, by going directly to the effect that it you caused. It was great. Yeah. I, you know, if you ever improvise with difficult people on stage, it's a gift. Yeah. Even though they're incredibly frustrating. Chris Quinn was at that time like a real mess in a lot of ways but he was genius i uh, was always glad to i always appreciated him especially on stage i like improvising with mad men you know like they they break all the rules and you just have to ride with it and if you're for real you'll figure out a way yeah i've never liked people who complain about somebody else's improv on stage unless they are totally just not responding to you Mm -hmm. which that's not cool Mm -hmm. i don't mind when people complain about offstage behavior Offstage, you don't have, you should never put up with somebody being mean or somebody belittling you or somebody making you feel bad. That's all bullshit. You don't ever have to tolerate any of that. But somebody's on stage being somebody says fuck you in the second line of a scene, they're allowed. Hmm. I mean, if you're if it's you know, if it's like showtime and you're like in front of a real audience, you it's on you. You have to respond to that. Yeah. You're not allowed to complain to the coach. They're not playing right. I don't think. You gotta go with it. <laughs> I mean <laughs> 
I cannot remember, but there was some scene with John Gimbling where I was just a bartender, and I said, like, what can I get you, sir? And he's like, I'll have a, uh, give me a, I think he said a pint of vodka by mistake. I said, I'll have a, uh, I, th- I think he said a pint of vodka by mistake. I said, a whole pint? Like, kind of point. And he looked at me and goes, yeah, I'll have a whole pint. I don't know. What the fuck was it? I know, he made fun of me every single line of the scene and did not advance the scene. Yeah. I think maybe I said pint by mistake. Yeah. And I ended up pouring a pint of vodka. He said, no, I don't want it. Pour it out. And then I like, had to pour it out. He's like, no, I'll have it again. And he would just have me make drinks for him and throw it out. Ignoring the scene, ignoring the initiation, audience exploding in laughter. Yeah. And I'm just basically getting made fun of in a meta way by my partner. Yeah. You got to roll with that. There's something That's interesting. That's a good time. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's interesting, too, because like it, 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 to me, that feels different than somebody playing the making fun of you game. The difference being, okay, what I'm doing in the scene right now, I'm making fun of you, so I'm going to find creative ways to make fun of you, versus, no, I'm fucking making fun of you directly. Fuck the scene. Fuck everything else. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's something about the directness of it that gives it actual teeth and and, and makes it so raw when you're watching it that you're just, like, dying the entire time. All I know is you can't hold on too tightly to the rules. Like, yeah. you got to go, all I know is that he's funny, it was funny, I can't worry about how it fits into structure. Yeah. Another one of my favorite moments he ever did was level three grad show, Rob Lathan and John Grimbling step out. The first beat had been them heckling people. Something in the opening had been about heckling mm-hmm. for sport. And so I think in the second beat of that, John Grimbling and Rob Lathan were two guys in the audience of a circus heckling a tightrope walker. This is our level this is an Armando class. This is a level three grad show. And they're heckling a tightrope walker. Fall off that tightrope. Ah, you lousy tightrope walker. We hope you fall now. Yeah, you jerk. And then uh, Vadim Newquist walked in, the, it was an improviser at the time, walked in, in with uh, eh, cotton candy, slingshots. And Gambling turns around and goes, oh, I'll have a cotton candy. <laughs> and I just remember in the audience watching, I was like, he is so funny. This is his third improv class ever. Yeah. And I was like, what? that's the perfect move. And then in notes, Armando was laughing and goes, why didn't you take the slingshot? John's like, I didn't want to hurt the guy. And, then, and he goes, cotton candy sounded good. Cotton, I wanted some cotton candy. It was more appealing than the slingshot. <laughs> Isn't that just like genius? Yeah, it's amazing. So what are you going to sit there and argue that he didn't follow the pattern? It's yeah. like, no, that's the funniest thing you could have said. Yeah. So what kind of improviser do you want to be? You want to be the asshole who's like, uh, you didn't play your game. Yeah. You want to be like, no, I want to be on a team with that dude. Yeah. But that meant that you'd sometimes do walk-ons into their scenes and just get like shut down. But you just had to enjoy it. I loved that team. Uh, it was weird, but I loved it. Uh, uh, that made me. That team made me who I was. Yeah, for sure. Well, I just remember watching and 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 like apart from just being so fucking funny, it was just like a lesson in total confidence. You guys just hit the stage and really, there, yeah, it didn't look <laughs> like like other teams. The, other, the teams that like Optimus International was playing back then. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Dillinger was had finished up their the cage match. Run! They had an amazing oh, right, right, right. Run yeah. it was a really, really tight group. I mean, it was a great, it was oh, a great Harold team. It was I a great, yeah, it was a great time. Creep was around then, right? I think just after. Ooh, just exciting. after. Exciting. Um, but like, I just remember like the effect that you guys had. There was like a, a total sense. Yeah, we of, were. We had a lot of swag. Yeah, there was just like no bullshit. We're here to do this. We knew each other pretty well at that point. I think we'd been together like four years yeah. or three years. I think so. Like, yeah, I remember that feeling. That yeah. was really fun. Yeah. I don't know if it was, we didn't have confidence that the shows would go well. We definitely, we, yeah, we didn't tolerate 
fake bullshit within the, there was no shoulds yes if anybody did anything for a should reason it got like shit on i think that's that might be what it was i remember like watching other teams doing like organic openings and and sometimes they would hit and sometimes they wouldn't hit but there, yeah. there could be a little bit of that soft feeling of like are we doing this yeah. right? I think that's it. That it, it that <laughs> thing of like it never seemed like you guys were operating from a place of should. It was it's a place so of crazy. like do it. I remember I walked under a scene once with Matt DeCoster and I was like, uh, "Hey, uh, thanks so much for proctoring the SAT for me. I don't have time to do that." Today. He's like, "Oh yeah, no problem, no problem." And then uh, and I was like, uh, "My wife's coming to pick me up. We're just going on this impulsive vacation or something." And then in the back line, somebody goes, uh-uh. "I was like, oh, there she is." And DeCoster goes, "How do you know that's her?" <laughs> I was like, well, this is the time you're supposed to pick me up. Because what, you have your, the sound of your horn memorized? And I was like, I guess, I guess you're right. I don't know if it's her. And then someone else in the back line goes, ha, 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 ha. I was like, oh, that's her. That's her. That's right. That's the horn. And then Matt's like, let me go out and see this car. And it never got to be about the SAT. Like, there was something in the opening about the SATs. It was just, we just examined the sound of the horn in my wife's car. Yeah. And then the scene ends with me and Matt getting in an elevator and riding it for four floors, getting out, and then the scene got edited. That's like, amazing. Like, it was insane. That's amazing. <laughs> Not that that was, like, a good scene. Yeah. But it's like, well, we're just following this weirdness. Yeah. I really, I loved all that. Uh, I assume you guys did, you had, like, a tiny horse on stage. <laughs> Yeah. What was that? <laughs> I forget what the hell the context of that was. I can't believe you were there for that. Yeah. Um, for DCM one year, Anthony King, the, the, or no, I think Owen Burke organized that it was charities where every Herald team had to pick a charity and whoever raised the most money got to open DCM. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. And so our charity was miniature horses, guide horses for the blind. Yeah. Like if people are allergic to dogs or if they just prefer horses, you can get a guide horse, <laughs> like a miniature horse. So bizarre. Yeah, but it's a true thing. Yeah. I think DeCoster found it as a joke, was like, this should be our sponsorship. And then I was like, yeah, whatever. What's our real charity going to be? And then Gambling was so in love with the cute horses. Like, oh, my God, they're so adorable and cute. We have to sponsor these people. So I was like, all right, we'll sponsor it. And we were not an organized team. And just everybody gave us money. Oh, the, the, uh, we told the foundation, and they flew out. And we are like, come on and host Herald Night. You can introduce us because mm-hmm. we're raising money for you guys. They were super nice. The horse's name was Scout. And just came on stage. We're like, all right, we're raising money for miniature guide horses. Here's, here is one. This is Scout. Super smart, trained animal. Uh, we raised all tons of money. And we opened DCM. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I was there. Awesome. What a memory, man. <laughs> uh, uh, really quick, one last thing I just want right. to bring up. Uh, uh, going back to your blog for a second, because we have like five minutes, right? Yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, um, you're, you're a really direct guy, and like you speak your mind. Um, one note that you wrote on your blog that I really dig, you, you were kind of like talking about the rules and you boiled it down to uh, no care say. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about that for Oh, a yeah, second? I was trying to, the, the rules, so, you know, the common improv rules, like no teaching, no transaction scenes, no questions. I was like, well, those don't really work. Yeah. I understand why they, they are effective. Yeah. And then I read Mick Napier's book, Improvise, and he like hates the rules because they're put in negative forms yeah, and telling yeah. you to go away from something instead of towards something. Yeah, I was yeah. like, that, 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 there's a sense to that. Human beings work better when you direct them towards something. Uh, although I do think those the no questions, no transaction, no, they do have a certain, they do click for some reason on level one. But I was like, just logically speaking, what if I could change the initial rules into positive things? Mm-hmm. And that's what I came up with. I was like, they're all just telling you 
that you have to choose to know what's going on, to choose to care about it, and choose to say something. Because mm-hmm. those are the three things that we are socialized to not do. Mm-hmm. We're socialized to say, this isn't my area. I don't know anything about this. We're socialized to be like, I don't give a shit about this. This isn't my problem. And we're socialized to be like, I'm staying out of this. Those are real instincts that we have learned. And although we want you to be real on stage, it's except for those three very ingrained things, big exceptions. Mm -hmm. I want you to be Lewis and have all your thoughts and feelings except for those defenses. Mm -hmm. You have to pretend that you, you have to assume you know, you have to give a shit, and you have to say something which may not be how you'd be in real life in every situation, but right. I need you to be like that in every situation on the stage. Uh, and that's hard. Yeah. There are defenses that are ingrained, and you have to be able to remove them without changing the rest of your personality, mm-hmm. which is really difficult. Yeah, that was my summary of it. Here's a, here's a related exercise I'll do. I for, uh, I'll ask people, uh, I'll put them in hypotheticals, and I'll be like, all right, here's the two, two hypotheticals I'll ask a lot. You're doing a scene. You and your girlfriend are in a hot air balloon ride uh, midway through it that you're riding for an anniversary present. What are you talking about? You know, if we could zoom in, what are you really talking about for real? And the, a lot of times the first things people in class will say is like, we're talking about how high it is or is it dangerous or I'm scared. And I'm like, nope. You have to assume that you got on this ride on purpose. You're in the middle of it. If you were really scared, you wouldn't have gotten on. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have booked it. Uh, and you're up halfway. It's working. So you, you have to kind of assume it's working. So you're not allowed to be scared of it because that doesn't really, it contradicts the situation, I'm telling you. So now what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Uh, telling her how much I love her. We're talking about our relationship. We're doing this. It's like, no, you're not. No, what are you really talking? Give me a real, if I could eavesdrop in the middle of it, what are you really talking about? And what I'm looking for is an answer of something like, we're talking about what was on Game of Thrones last week mm-hmm. or where we're going to have dinner that night or about a mutual friend and gossiping or something. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's what you'd be talking about. So like, you have to get rid of your defenses and pretending that you're scared and you have to get rid of what you think the audience is expecting you to talk about. Just You got to tell me what you really, what is a real conversation with you like? Like that's hard to do. Um, and then the second hypothetical I give them is, all right, improv scene, you're in a scuba suit, you're about to be backed into the ocean for a, your first time scubaing by yourself because you're taking scuba lessons. What are you thinking? You, what are you in particular, Lewis, thinking? And when I say it like that, people are like, I'm scared, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go in the water. And I'm like, no, you're not allowed to. They're like, no, but that's what I really would be thinking. And I was like, no, you took a scuba class. You showed up on the day that you're doing your first, you wouldn't have shown up. You're here. You're not allowed to say you don't want to be here. What is the part of your brain that if you're not scared, what are you thinking? You're probably thinking, you're probably excited to do it. Or maybe you're just thinking over the steps that you've been taught. Mm -hmm. You know, is my tank already, you know. But, and that kind of weird leap as an actor, that's what's hard. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't, but I still want it to be, well, let me ask you that. What would you be thinking? If there were a girl on the boat, yeah. I would be thinking, <laughs> I wonder if she thinks I look cool. Yeah, that's the kind of shit I, I believe it. Yeah. But that's hard to do. Yeah. Because you're, you know, it's very easy to be distracted by the fact that you're doing this weird scuba thing. Yeah. You're, that's, this is the, you have to shake hands with that. That's the first choice. You just have to be cool with that. Uh, it's hard, though. So the no care say, I think, is like trying to like, 
get people to the point where you skip all your natural mammal brain defenses. Yeah. All, all the stuff without, that makes without a big changing deal. your real personality, though, right. which is hard. Yeah. That's awesome. Will Hines, this has been a real pleasure, man. Oh, thank you very much for talking. This is a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much, man. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, Thanks, this, everybody. The Magnet Theater Podcast is produced by Evan Ford Barden and engineered by Grant Michael Goldberg with executive producer Ed Herbstman and is recorded at the Magnet Training Center in New York City. We can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast.